Hello and welcome to another episode of Travelosophy. I'm your host, Jade Jackson, and in this episode, I'm taking you to Russia and along the Trans-Mongolian Railway. Now, Russia may not be on the tourism radar of many travellers, but being the largest country in the world, it offers a plethora of attractions, from food to architecture to art and scenery. One of the most famous tourist attractions in Russia is, of course, the Trans-Siberian Railway. And it's one of those trips that many people talk about doing, but few actually do. Part of the reason is it's not the easiest trip to organise. There's strict visa requirements. There's timetables to figure out, of which Russia has five time zones. And the train timetable runs on Moscow time the whole time. The railway covers over 9,000 kilometres, making it one of the longest railway journeys in the world. And there's two main routes, the Trans-Siberian, which runs from Moscow to Vladivostok in eastern Russia, and the Trans-Mongolian, which runs from Moscow to Alain-Bator in Mongolia, which then continues on to Beijing. I did the Trans-Mongolia Railway, starting from the fairy tale dollhouse architecture of St. Petersburg, traversing through the pine forests and tundra of Siberia, before finally ending up in the desert dunes of Mongolia and passing beneath the Great Wall of China. If you did the railway trip non-stop, it would take about a week. However, there's so much to stop and see along the way. One of the trickiest parts of the trip, besides the railway to organise, is the airfare, because you'll need to fly into Europe and out of Asia. Korean Air and Japan Airlines both offer trans-Siberian fares out of Australia, which allows this journey, but it may work out cheaper to book two one-way journeys with different airlines. Most travel agents don't know about trans-Siberian airfares, so you may need to contact an airline direct. I paid about 2500 Australian dollars return with Japan Airlines, which included a stopover in Tokyo, but you could also pick up a cheap flight with someone like Scoot Airlines to Berlin and then book another cheap sector flight from there to St. Petersburg or Moscow. I've written a blog post about booking sector fares on my website, which I'll include a link to in the show notes for the podcast. Just a warning on Russian airlines. Aeroflot does have some new Airbus aircraft. However, I took a flight from Moscow to St. Petersburg with Pulkovo Aviation, which was truly like stepping back in time. Pulkovo Aviation was a state-owned regional carrier and now all regional Russian airlines have since merged with Aeroflot. But on Pulkovo Aviation, the plane decor was straight out of the 70s, as was the cabin crew's uniforms. It was as if the memo on modern international safety standards hadn't reached Russia, because the person sitting next to me on the plane, their seatbelt didn't latch. People were smoking the entire flight, and as the plane was taking off, they were walking up and down the aisle, talking on their mobile phones and smoking. The toilet door didn't latch, nor did the toilet flush. And just to finish it off, the guy sitting next to me was a large businessman who picked his nose, then flicked it in my general direction. Not a safety hazard, but it just added to my list of woes. When we got off the plane after it had landed, all the seats flopped forward, so the cleaners could empty out the seat back pockets more easily. However, 
There was no tension holding them upright, so in a crash it would have been like dominoes. When I collected my bag, it was on the carousel already, and all the buckles and zips were open, so someone had obviously rummaged through my bag. There was nothing missing because there was nothing worth taking. It was just the final thing with Pulkovo Aviation. Because of visa requirements for Russia, you will need to have everything pre-booked before you travel. So it will require some planning. There are travel agents that specialise in Russia and Trans-Mongolian travel. There are a couple of websites which you can pre-book each train journey and then use a hotel booking site separately to book your accommodation. You will need to have every aspect of your journey pre-booked prior to applying for your Russian visa. I can't stress that enough. You will also need a Mongolian visa and a Chinese visa, all of which take time to arrange, so you'll probably want to start planning a Trans-Mongolian trip at least six months in advance, if not more if you plan on travelling in peak period. Obviously, using a travel agent that specialises in Trans-Mongolian railway trips will be more expensive, but doing it on your own can be fiddly, but once it's done, you can relax and enjoy the trip. At the end of the podcast, I'll include further information about booking. Whilst Russia operates in more of a market economy, there's still remnants of communism that have hung about, which you'll notice more the further east you head. Generally speaking, Western Russia is richer and has more stunning architecture. And as you head east, away from Moscow, the towns appear more desolate, destitute and run down. With ties in both Europe and Asia, Russia is essentially two countries in one. One of the things that stood out was you often saw people standing around in boxes like ticket booths, except they weren't necessarily selling tickets or giving directions. They were just there. I guess it harks back to when everyone had a job, regardless of what that was. Starting off in St Petersburg is like walking around a fairy tale town of grand mansions painted in pastel pinks, blues and yellows, intertwined with white motifs. The main attraction is the Hermitage Museum. I can easily say it's the most impressive museum I've seen in the world, and I've seen many. It's huge. You could easily fill days here and still not see it all. And there's so much gold on the walls, the chandeliers, along banisters. It's something you'd expect in a palace for royalty, not a museum. It houses artwork from Russia and Europe, including many famous works, along with swords, armour, porcelain and statues. There's actually a travelling exhibition that has just opened up in Sydney, which is artworks from the Hermitage Museum, to give you a taste of what's on offer. There's a couple of other museums, but being in Russia, for me, I found was more about the joy of experiencing a world different to home. Russian food is simple, with rye bread, which is usually rock hard and dry, cucumbers and tomatoes being a main staple of the everyday. However, traditional meals like stroganoff and borscht which is a beetroot soup, can be found tucked away in local restaurants. With the disappearance of communism came the arrival of American fast food, which is becoming more common. Alcohol is easily found, with vodka being the main staple. I remember the first time I went into a corner store, I was dumbfounded. It was wall-to-wall vodka, some as cheap as a dollar, up to the most expensive being around 40 US dollars for foreign brands. But you can easily pick up a decent Russian brand for about $8 to $12. Look for the light blue label with gold swallows on it. Until recently, the Russian government classified beer as a soft drink, so anyone could buy it anywhere. Of course, like China, as countries become more modernised with greater trade and hence 
become richer, prices go up. Travelling from St. Petersburg to Moscow is an overnight trip. And apart from Red Square and St. Basil's Cathedral, one of the things I really wanted to do was to attend the Bolshoi Ballet. I'd never been to the ballet, but I figured a good place to start was the Bolshoi. I had a walking tour organised with a student who primarily used it to practice her English, but it was with her help that I was able to secure tickets to a sold-out show. Every performer in the show gets an allocation of tickets, each night for family and friends, but usually they sell them off for extra income. So it was a matter of finding a scalper, which took all of about five minutes, agreeing on a price I was prepared to pay based on seat location, and in a slightly dodgy black market handshake, I had secured tickets to Swan Lake at the Bolshoi Theatre. I can't remember exactly how much it was, but I think I paid about 40 or 50 US dollars. As I was travelling, I didn't have a tuxedo, but I dressed up as best I could, and the experience was incredible. Although, it wasn't until I read the program at the intermission that I finally understood what the story was. But, you can also order champagne and caviar at the Bolshoi, which was only about 20 or $30, but seemed an apt place to indulge in such a fanciful treat. Wandering Moscow was like every spy movie you've ever seen, with the Kremlin standing tall in the centre. You can wander parts of it, as there's a publicly accessible museum and library. Red Square is nearby, which was way smaller than Tiananmen Square in Beijing. And it's literally just a big square. Although it does house the mausoleum of Joseph Stalin and the gypsy-like St Basil's Cathedral. Although there was a smaller church I stumbled upon in St Petersburg that was very similar to St Basil's that had no crowds. Also, St Basil's isn't the only stunning church you'll find in Russia. Many of them are painted inside with gold. But when you travel all the way to Moscow, you can't go past getting a selfie in front of the famous St Basil's. The biggest thing I noticed with Moscow was the variation in prices. And I paid from 50 cents for a coffee, which admittedly was pretty terrible from a roadside vendor, up to $10 in a European-style cafe. Obviously, with such wealth disparity... Poorer locals are only going to stick with cheaper places. So it's one of those places where getting to know the locals is imperative if you're on a budget. Corner shops are where most people did their grocery shopping. There's a few international supermarket chains these days throughout Russia, including Stockman and Orchan, of which you'll find all the details in the Lonely Planet guidebook. At these supermarkets, you can pick up essentials for the train journey ahead, but it was pretty expensive compared to back home. If you plan on buying westernised snack food like corn chips and salsa, I remember I paid around $20 for this. Bread, long-life processed cheese, yoghurt, tinned meats and fruits and veggies are all things you can easily purchase from any local corner store. And of course, most trains have buffet carts as well. From Moscow to Irkutsk was the longest portion of the trip for me at five days. And when the train runs on Moscow time, the trickiest part is figuring out when the buffet cart is actually open. Multiple times I'd head up for, say, breakfast, only to be told by the chef, kitchen closed, it's midnight, as the sun glared harshly through scenic windows. The train stopped regularly in remote villages. Occasionally someone would get on or off, but mostly there was little movement apart from elderly women wearing headscarves trying to sell a loaf of bread through open windows, which... After eating mostly instant noodles, porridge and dried fruit, was a welcome addition. 
except even with a Swiss army knife, I couldn't cut a single slice. It was so rock hard, she'd probably been trying to flog the same loaf of bread for weeks. Another woman was selling perfectly ripe bananas. Where she managed to obtain fresh bananas in Siberia when it's minus 10 degrees was beyond me, but sometimes it was better not to ask questions. On top of that, the longer the trip went, the simpler the menu got in the train restaurant. Until no matter what you ordered, you received the same thing. I met some other travellers and one lunchtime, which was more like 5pm, I ordered a pizza and, a, and someone else ordered a sandwich. Yet we both received soup of dubious ingredients. The bag of corn chips and salsa I bought in Moscow, I ended up carrying it for most of the trip. It seemed like I should wait for a special occasion because they were so expensive. But by the time I got to eating it, the corn chips were so crushed, they were more like crumbs. Irkutsk is by Lake Baikal, the deepest freshwater lake in the world, and it holds a quarter of the world's freshwater. It also has unique marine species found nowhere else in the world, including a freshwater seal, coral, and tropical fish, because it used to have ties to the ocean. However, now in winter, it completely freezes over. The ice is so thick they can drive trucks across it. As I'd never encountered anything like that, I stepped out onto the lake and it was freaky as hell because the ice is clear, so you can see through it, but it's still solid. I didn't go too far out, just far enough to say I've walked on water, and that was enough for me. In Irkutsk, I stayed in another homestay, except the difference here was the owner gave up her bed for the sake of earning precious US dollars. I paid about $20 a night, including breakfast, and it wasn't till the last night I realised that the owner was sleeping on a mattress on the floor of her kitchen. Such was the desperation for additional income. I felt terrible and offered her own bed back, but she insisted on sleeping on the floor. I had paid for a bed and a bed I would receive. Homestays are of course the lifeblood of small villages, so make sure you use them and directly support local communities. From Irkutsk, the train diverted south towards Mongolia. Crossing the border is an almost all-day affair, as the train tracks use different gauges. Also, the landscape changes dramatically from rolling sand dunes to open grassland with the occasional camel wandering about. Ulan Bator, the capital of Mongolia, was a mix of traditional yurts and modern skyscrapers. You had old guys wearing traditional red and blue silk jackets with pointy hats and sleeves that dropped below their hands, walking beside students in jeans chatting on smartphones. As Mongolia is between Russia and China, it's heavily influenced by both. So architecture and language is primarily Russian, but food is more like Chinese, with its own local twist. As traditional nomadic people, to experience Mongolia, you have to stay in a yurt. A yurt is a large structured tent, warmed with a fire stove, with single beds and small chairs. Admittedly, I stayed in the five-star version, which had someone to come in during the night to make sure our fire was stoked, so we didn't freeze. There was also a separate mess hall where meals were served, and out in the grasslands, the only sounds were birds and winds rustling the grass. Lambatur was so different to anything else I'd seen, I was actually just happy to wander and explore. It's not so big, but I remember there was some fantastic markets selling lots of local goods, and I bought these leather slippers, which were pointy, kind of like what the locals wore, and a beautiful handmade leather notebook. There was also a dinosaur museum, 
as there's been lots of fossils found in Mongolia. Whilst crossing the border from Russia to Mongolia was an all-day affair, crossing the border from Mongolia into China was even more problematic, as we were made to stand against the wall of the corridor, eyes straight ahead, outside our cabin, as our bags were searched, bedding was stripped, pillows were given to sniffer dogs to see if any drugs were hidden. My backpack was rummaged through to the bottom, before a Chinese border guard came out holding up a CD case, asking sternly, Whose is this? It was a Best of J-Lo compilation CD I'd picked up in Moscow. I was like, um, it's mine? Expecting a drama to unfold. But he simply threw it back in my bag and stormed off to the next cabin. I have no idea what it was about. Maybe he was a fan of J-Lo himself. But I was fretting because I had a, purchased a Buddhist prayer book from a temple in Ulaanbaatar. Its cover was made of wood and it had loose pages handwritten in acrylic. I was pretty sure it was an antique, but it was a cool souvenir, and the temple was clearing out space in a sort of jumble sale. So for the paltry sum of like $8, I had something for the coffee table back home. But I know antiques can cause problems at border crossings. However, luckily they didn't notice it at the bottom of my pack wrapped up in a dirty t-shirt. After like six hours, we finally moved on. The last section of the train was overnight, and the next morning took us via the Great Wall of China. The train stops so everyone can get off and take a photo before we arriving into Beijing. You'd think after three weeks, I'd have been busting my gut to get off the train. But my cabin became my little sanctuary, where the outside world didn't exist. It was just the rattle and bump of the train, non-stop card games. And because there was nothing to do except take in the scenery, I didn't feel guilty about doing nothing for hours on end just staring at the train tracks we left behind. The contrast of scenery and people and culture was so dramatically different from start to finish. It's one of those trips that it's easy to feel like you're going from place to place, but the train is as much the highlight as the destination. So relish every aspect of the entire journey. It's a great trip to learn how to slow down, read, write a novel, or write letters to friends back home. Not every train has PowerPoint sockets, so it's also a good way to switch off. Part of what puts many people off this trip is the cost. However, booking the trip independently can work out much cheaper. Remember, at the end of the day, it's a regular train journey going from A to B. It's complicated because it traverses multiple countries, but it's not impossible to book it yourself. It just requires some planning. I'd recommend getting the latest copy of the Lonely Planet guidebook for the Trans-Siberian Railway. In it, it has sections on planning and booking your trip, information about all the towns and stops along the way, accommodation options including contact details, and detailed information about the trains themselves. Pretty much, it's your Bible for travelling independently. I did the journey in late March, early April, which meant going through Siberia was all snow, which was incredibly beautiful. It also meant the train wasn't as crowded as in the middle of summer. To book your train journeys, you can head to the Russian train website, which I'll include a link in the show notes. It's a tad tricky to navigate, but it has an English section, so you should be able to manage. Otherwise, there's a site run by a UK travel agency, which allows you to book sector fares and collect the tickets on arrival in Moscow, or have an e-ticket emailed to you. Obviously, because it's through an agency, they charge a fee. 
It does allow you to see in real time what days the trains go, and you can tell the Russian trains via the Chinese trains with a little flag on the timetable. The agency I used was in Australia, and I think they've since been taken over by another company because the website looks different. But anyway, I'll include a link to them as well. And they can book everything, including accommodation, sector fares, local tours and transfers. Basically, you give them a rough itinerary and they put it together based on the timetable. Although they prefer you to have figured out the train timetable for your itinerary yourself. I know taking a tour is a personal choice and many travellers love them. But for a trip like the Trans-Mongolian or Trans-Siberian Railway, which has to be pre-organised before arrival anyway, most of it is sitting on a train and you don't need a tour guide for that. However, if you do prefer a tour, then the Vodka Train and Sundowners are two regular companies that organise Trans-Mongolian tours. Inexperienced travellers often fret about getting places or getting lost or fear getting robbed. But you have to remember that everywhere you go, it's just locals going about their daily business, going to work, going to school, going to the movies. They couldn't care less that a foreigner is walking past. If you ask for directions, most people, as long as they get the gist of what you're trying to say, will help you out because as people, that's what we do. As I booked my trip through an agent, they included a walking tour in almost every city, which was exciting at first, but it got to the point where you end up having the same conversations four times over. However, each tour can be tailored to what you're interested in, whether it be history, shopping, eating, or maybe you just want to find out about life in Russia. I found the younger the guide, the more enthusiastic they were, and whilst they will have a plan on where to take you, be clearer about what you want out of the tour as well. I felt obligated to shout them lunch, which wasn't a huge deal, but some guides may carry their own packed lunch, so just ask. Whilst Russia isn't necessarily known for its foodie culture, eating, drinking and shopping where locals go will offer you more authentic experiences and avoid eating in tourist areas unless you want to pay 10 times as much. In local neighbourhoods, there's less chance of being harassed by people trying to sell you junk stuff and often you'll discover local treasures that aren't necessarily in the guidebook. Although, after five days of train food, I remember finding a pizza restaurant was pretty damn exciting. With few meal options on the train, I was surprised with how many meals can be made with just hot water. Of course, instant noodles were a staple, along with baby food, because it doesn't need to be cooked or processed, you can just eat it straight as is. For breakfast, I recommend baby porridge, because unlike regular porridge, you just add hot water, there's no need to cook it, and you can spice it up with dried fruit or nuts. And these are easy things to chuck in your suitcase or carry on. So no matter where you end up, you've got an easy meal ready in minutes. Especially these days with budget airlines charging for meals, there's always hot water available on a flight, as is the case on the Trans-Mongolian train. Muesli bars, tin salmon and tuna and those little lunch packs are all easy food items you can take travelling. Before you take a long train trip like the Trans-Mongolian Railway, obviously download as much music and podcasts and books as you think you'll need to keep entertained. Learn as many card games as you can and you can easily pick up travel versions of popular games like Connect Four, Guess Who, Cluedo, Twister or my favourite, Casta Gris or Toss the Pigs. Not that I drink anymore but if you have a bottle of vodka and a deck of cards you'll make many friends on the Trans-Mongolian Railway. Even if you don't speak local languages everybody understands card games. Also, don't feel guilty about not doing anything. 
There's nothing more relaxing than not having things to do or places to go. And so you can just lie in your cabin all day, reading a book or listening to music whilst gazing out the window. For exercise, you can walk from one end of the train to the other, which is a few hundred metres. Plus, I found the last carriage mesmerising and would often just hang about watching the train tracks disappear into the horizon. I travelled first class, which has two bunk beds in the cabin, a shared sink, which doubles as a shower, although it's more of just a hose, and soft beds. It also meant there was at most 20 people sharing the toilet. Also, in first class, the guards tend to keep an eye out for you more, and if there's any unsavoury-looking characters hanging about, they'll kick them out. Which only happened once, but having said that, the entire train is locals travelling from A to B, mostly going home. The Chinese trains are of better standard than the Russian trains I found, which you can distinguish on the timetable when you make a booking. If you stop along the way, you won't be on the same train for the entire journey, so the standards and facilities can of course change. Second class has four bunks to a room and a thin hard mattress, whilst third class is pretty much open with three bunks either side. And I don't think it has any mattresses, or sometimes third class is just seats. In some cases, our stop was dependent on the train timetable. So if the train only came by that station once every three days, then we'd stop for three days. But the journey isn't about getting from A to B. It's about taking in everything you see along the way. It's the experience of a long train journey and everything that comes with it. You don't need to speak Russian or Chinese, but like everywhere, it helps to be able to at least recognise letters of the acrylic alphabet to figure out where you are. Russian rubles and Chinese yuan can't be taken out of Russia or China, so US dollars cash was most useful and easy to exchange. On some occasions, I was able to use US dollars to make direct purchases in Russia. However, there are some ATMs that accept international cards. Just make sure you look for the Visa logo before you use it. However, often there was limits on how much cash could be taken out. In China, only certain banks accept international card, and it's a good idea to get a prepaid China Union travel money card, which can be used to make FPOS purchases in shops in China. If you want more information about China, check out my podcast episode about travelling China independently. One of the ironic things about my trans-Mongolian journey was I actually travelled with an ex-girlfriend. We'd broken up a month or two before, and it was one of those trips that was easier with a travelling partner. And both of us were travel agents, so we could both get the same discounts. We had the holidays and the funds, and none of her friends were in that position. And we had travelled together previously, so I knew we could do it. But the funniest thing was, the entire trip, every hotel, homestay, and yurt, was twin single beds. So there was not even a hint of us getting back together. Although after that trip, we did eventually get back together for a bit and ended up moving to Japan before we broke up for good. But that's a whole other podcast. Point is, if you're going to travel with another person for the Trans-Mongolian Railway, make sure it's someone who you can actually travel with. Because you'll be in each other's face 24-7. And there's very few places to escape when you're on the train. For some people, the idea of travelling on a train is boring. And I get that. It's not for everyone. So make sure you choose a travel partner that is with you for that journey. There are younger tour groups if you prefer to travel with other people, but these tend to focus on the drinking rather than the locations. And especially now that I don't drink, the idea of spending days and weeks on end in a little cabin cut off from the world is hugely appealing because it's an opportunity to write.
perhaps that's just me. I have met travellers, usually single guys that travelled in third class and met lots of locals. But when you're taking a trip, you're pretty sure it's going to be once in a lifetime. I wanted to do it in comfort. As a first class passenger, you can wander down to the other cabins anyway. So you can still take your vodka and your deck of cards and go and meet some locals. But when you want to chill out and get some sleep, you've got your comfy bed. Plus, the beds in first class fold up, so you have a couch and a chair during the day to sit on. It's like an unwritten rule. If you leave your cabin door open, then you're inviting anyone walking past to come in and chat. But if you close your door, then it's like a do not disturb. Overall, the Trans-Mongolian Railway journey is a different kind of travel experience, which you can easily do independently, though it will need to be pre-booked. It's as much about scenery as small villages spending days in your own little world within your cabin. You can do it in as little as a week straight, or you can get off and see the places you're going past and take several weeks. Either way, from the start to finish, you encounter completely different people, scenery and towns, and that's part of the charm. Thank you so much for listening to Travelosophy with Jade Jackson. If you love this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you haven't checked out my other podcast, Jade Talk Stuff, then please do. You'll, of course, find it wherever you subscribe to this one. If you'd like exclusive bonus content like copies of my travel photos, additional podcast episodes and recordings of my poetry and micro stories, then head to patreon.com forward slash Jade Jackson. That's patreon.com forward slash Jade Jackson. And for just a couple of bucks a month, you'll have access to a whole heap of extra goodies. Lastly, make sure you head to my website, jadejackson.com.au, to read my travel blog posts or to buy custom prints of any of my incredible travel photos from my online shop. You can also listen to past episodes of any of my podcasts. Don't forget to tweet me at jadekinsjackson or send me a voicemail message on Facebook at Travelosophy Podcast. You know it gets awfully lonely writing and creating podcasts, so please say hi. And of course, if you are traveling, then please send me a postcard. Head to my website, click on contact, and you'll find the details. That's it for another show. Thank you so much for listening to Travelosophy with Jay Jackson. Bye-bye now. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1.